Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. All right. Uh, welcome back to Sunday School. This is the second lesson in our series that we are currently underway in on church unity. I know some of you weren't here last week, um, and that last lesson was um, an important one because it's part of the foundation that we're laying that we're going to build upon in the coming lessons. So I know that it was recorded, and it's on the the church website. Uh, I think right now it's currently under the podcast section, so you'll have to find it there. Uh, Or you can just email me, and I can send it to you directly. Um, But we will review a little bit before we get into today's lesson. So let's do that. So in our last lesson, we focused on the fundamental biblical principle of unity and diversity, and specifically as it related to to, to the Trinity. And we looked at three important truths regarding the Trinity with that kind of broader background of unity and diversity. Most of our time was spent on the first truth. And that first truth was that God is a personal and relational being. God is a personal and relational being. And we said that because our God is triune, because he's persons in relationship, it it sets him apart from any and all other religious systems, even other monotheistic gods. So with Islam and even with Judaism, their notion of God is a singular, solitary person. But we, we observe that that's not sustainable because if God is a singular, solitary person, then how can he know anything about love and relationship? Because love requires an agent and an object to delight in. And so our God can truly be called love. God is love, as it says in 1 John 4, 8. Why? Because he's persons in relationship. And this is very important because we have been made in the image of God. We have been made to reflect this God who is persons in relationship. And so we also are to be persons in relationship, just as he is. In fact, we said that our identity as humans, as human beings, is bound up in the relationships that we have. It is in our relationships that we find out who we are, our security and our significance. Because again, that's the way God has made us to be. So we find our identity in the relationships that we look to for our security and our significance. We said that even within the Godhead, there is identity that is being established by way of relationship. The Father is the Father because there's a relationship there between Father and Son. Without the Son, it wouldn't make any sense to call Him Father. A Father in relation to whom? And the same thing with the Son. So we see that even within the Godhead, identity is being established by way of relationship. And it's the same with us. All right, so we continue to consider this uh, idea that in the biblical account, human identity then, uh, it it explains this yearning for completion that we have that draws us into relationships. 
all of us are born into this world with a certain sense of feeling insecure, feeling insignificant, and so we want to find that. We want to, we want to determine what our significance is. We want, to, we want to find a certain degree of security. Who am I? What is my identity? So we form relationships. But the problem is that because of sin, uh, the most primary relationship that we need has been strained. That, that's to put it mildly, right? The relationship that we have with God is one of enmity when we're born into this world. We are at enmity with God, and he is at enmity with us. And so because of that, we have an identity crisis. We have an identity crisis. We, we have this sense of insecurity and insignificance. And so we try to fill that void with other things. Oftentimes we try to find it maybe in, in, our other, in other relationships, relationships with each other. But again, sin gets in the way because we're, we're cynical. We think everyone, else, everyone around us is out for their own self-interest. Because we know, in reality, so are we. And so it's hard even for us to maintain human-to-human -human relationships with total transparency because of sin. And so all that to say that re relationship is intimately uh, connected with who we are as human beings and the way that God has made us. We were made to reflect this interpersonal interrelational fellowship that we see in the Trinity. And the only way that we, we are going to have our identity restored is to have our relationship with God restored, <coughs> is, to, is to come to Christ. And when we come to Christ, that restoration process begins. We, we are once again brought into that, um, that sense of identity that we we're meant to have, that our security and our significance comes in relation to, to God, first and foremost, right? And then, and then we're also able to form better relationships with others, especially those who are also in Christ. So, um, I think that pretty much covers most of what we discussed in terms of the, the first truth. The second truth that we considered is that God is both one and three. That was the second truth about the Trinity we considered, is that God is both one and three. God is one being in three persons. We said that this is not a contradiction. We're not saying that God is one being and three beings. We're not saying that God is one person and three persons. That would be a contradiction. We're saying that God is one being, three persons. We noted that in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, it says, Go out, make disciples, and baptize in the name. The singular name, not the names, not plural, the name. What name? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the one name for the one God. It's not three names for three different gods. We said that when we're thinking of the Trinity, it's not so much one plus one plus one equals three. It's more like multiplication. One times one times one equals one. All right, that was the second truth. And then the third truth we consider is that the three persons of the Trinity willingly and lovingly operate according to an authority structure. The three persons of the Trinity willingly and lovingly operate according to an authority structure. So, the Father always sends the Son. We never see the Son sending the Father. And the, and the Son willingly submits to the Father. I only do what I see the Father do. And I only say and speak 
what he commands me to say and speak. And then with the Spirit, we see that the Spirit is always sent by the Father and the Son, never the other way around. So there's an authority structure even within the Trinity. And we noted that although there is this authority structure within, this, within the Trinity, at the same time, it's not every person for himself. There's always love and support and affirmation that is occurring. So when the Son was sent by the Father, it's not as if the Father and the Spirit just said, okay, well, tell us when you're done. Tell us when you've accomplished this mission. No, the whole time, the Father is encouraging the Son. He, he poured out the Spirit upon the Son without measure. And, of course, the, the Spirit is our comforter. So Christ had the full measure of that comforter with, with him throughout his ministry. This is my Son who I'm well pleased with. Listen to him. He's publicly affirming his Son. Loving him, encouraging him, supporting him. So even though there's this authority structure, it doesn't mean that there's not love constantly there, nurturing love. And finally, we said that this authority structure does not in any way diminish the essential equality of the persons within the Godhead. So just because the Son submits willingly to the Father doesn't mean that he is some second-class citizen within the Godhead. He's equally God. And just because the Spirit uh, is sent by the Father and the Son doesn't mean that he's like, you know, the third rung on the totem pole of the Godhead. No, they're all equal. They're all equally worthy of praise and adoration and glory and honor. So an authority structure doesn't in any way lessen a person's dignity who is within that authority structure. They're all equally dignified. <clears throat> So that was, by way of review, that was what we covered last week. Now what we're going to do today is continue to kind of build upon that. Today we're going to consider some implications about these truths that we looked at last week, specifically as they relate to the family and as they relate to the church. So uh, before we get into the family, just a couple more quick notes here. As we've said, sin has marred God's image in man. As, as was said earlier, man has an identity crisis. When we're born into this world, we have an identity crisis. We don't really know who we are, what we are all about, why am I here? And so we, there's, there's insecurity, there's insignificance there. And that's why Christ was sent. Christ was sent to be the perfect, He's the, he is the perfect image of the invisible God. He's the, the perfect second Adam. And so because of what Christ accomplished for his people, when we are brought into that relationship with Christ, when we are joined to him, our identity is being restored. As the Holy Spirit conforms us more and more to the image of the Son, our identity as image bearers is being gradually restored. And so our relationship to the Son is what restores our relationship to the Father. Right? If, when we are joined to Christ, okay, because we are joined to Christ, because he imputes his righteousness to us, now we are brought back into fellowship with the Father. So it is by virtue of our relationship with the second person of the Trinity that then restores our relationship with the first person of the Trinity. 
Because we're joined to the Son, now we are brought back into fellowship with the Father. But we're being conformed more and more to the image of that Son through sanctification. And how does that happen? The Spirit. So the third person of the Trinity dwells within us, conforms us more and more into the image of the second person of the Trinity, all so that we can, all of that so that we can be more and more restored in fellowship with the Father, the first person of the Trinity. So what I'm, what I'm driving at here is that, again, we see that I, our identity is bound up in relationship, and first and foremost, in the relationships that we have with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So identity is found in relationships. As new creatures in Christ, we are to reflect the image of God as accurately as we can by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And the Trinity is our model for doing so. It's our model for doing so. The Trinity is our paradigm for human relationships. If we want to understand how we should go about establishing and maintaining and nurturing and culturing the relationships we have with each other, well, we look to the, to the relationships of the Trinity for, as our paradigm. That, that's our template. So let's apply that now to the family. In marriage, we have two persons who are united by a relationship into one flesh. We talked about that a little bit last week. Unity and diversity. Two different people, male and female, diversity, becoming one. So unity and diversity. And that in and of itself reflects our triune God. Although they're different, they each belong to each other. Male and female are created as beings who offers something that the other doesn't have. And that's a profound thing that maybe we don't spend a lot of time thinking about, but there's something about femaleness that I don't have as a male. And there's something about my maleness that my wife as a female doesn't have. And when we're brought into union, it, 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 it's complete. There's a completion there that is taking place. The satisfaction in the intimacy of that marriage union is established by virtue of the differences, if that makes sense. And, and this is why, for example, homosexual marriage, which is illegitimate, that's why it's so devastating, is it's undermining all of this. Two men cannot have that kind of union. Two women cannot have that kind of union. The thing that makes this union so special and so rich is by virtue of the fact that there's a, a huge difference here between male and female. It has to do with our image bearing. Remember, we looked at that last week as well. That in the image of God, he made him, singular, Male and female, he made them, plural. So the maleness and femaleness aspect, that difference is actually part of, it's wrapped up in our image bearing. And it's beautifully displayed in the union between a man and a wife, or husband and a wife. And when the world decides to redefine that, it's completely undermining an essential part of our of our identity as humans, as image bearers. 
If you're Satan, what do you want to do? You want to attack what? Attack maleness and femaleness. Because that is intimately associated with them being image bearers, and I hate that they're image bearers. I hate the human race. So let's get them to question even maleness and femaleness. And no longer abide by even those categories. And let's totally undermine the family. Let's totally undermine marriage. Because that also is intimately associated with image bearing. So it shouldn't surprise you that that's exactly what we find in our society. A constant attack, a constant barrage on maleness and femaleness, a constant barrage on the family, and redefining marriage and perverting it to something it's entirely not supposed to be. As we previously observed, the biblical idea of personhood entails being involved in a relationship of unity and diversity. People find their meaning only in relation to another person who is different from them. That's how we find our meaning. As with the persons of the Trinity, when we're looking at marriage, neither the husband nor the wife is to pursue his or her own agenda, irrespective of the good of the one, irrespective of the good of the marriage. The husband is not to seek his own agenda. The wife is not to seek her own agenda, irrespective of the unity that is supposed to be there in the marriage. And even as there is mutual encouragement among each of the persons of the Trinity, so there is to be mutual encouragement and support among the persons of the family. The husband is not to rule over his house in such a way that he issues directives without considering the individual needs of his wife, and without providing help and encouragement and support in the carrying out of those tasks that he assigns. So, yes, we see an authority structure in the Trinity, and we see an authority structure in, in marriage. The man is the head of the home, the woman is to submit, the children are to submit to both, both parents to honor them. There's an there's a authority structure there. That's okay. There's an authority structure in the Trinity. And when the husband, the head of the home, is giving directives, he is to do that in love, with support, affirmation, just like we saw the father doing for the son. This is my son. I love him. Listen to him. Children, this is my wife. I love her. Listen to her. It's, it's the same thing. Like the Trinity, the family is to be a relationship of reciprocated love and honor. The husband is not to use his authority to suppress and tyrannize his wife. Rather, like the Heavenly Father, he is to be a loving authority who is always looking out for the best interests of the other. Conversely, the wife is not to regard her submissive role to the husband's authority as being some kind of personal affront or attack on her dignity. That's the lie of feminism. There's, there's a number of lies in feminism, but that's a primary one. Why, why submit to your husband? You're your own person. The lie of feminism is that the woman should have the freedom to explore her own individuality, even at the expense of the needs of her family. Right? And ironically, the more a wife seeks to find her identity by pursuing her own agenda, 
irrespective of the needs of the family, what ends up happening? She actually loses her identity in doing that. That's the irony of it. Because our identity is found in our relationships. God created the wife to submit to the husband and to nurture that relationship with the husband, to nurture those relationships of whatever children they may have. And the more that she kind of spurns that and says, no, I want to pursue my own thing. She's moving away from what God has created her to do. And so she's actually depersonalizing herself. She's actually dehumanizing herself. Because, again, as we said, as humans, we were made to be in relationship. And one of the most, the most profound relationship there is, humanly speaking, between humans, right? The most profound human relationship is that between a man and a wife. That is the most profound relationship that we can have. And second would be that between parents and children. Yes. Yeah, I watched a movie years ago, before I was a believer, where there was a, a family and a very close friend of the family, and it kind of went through their lives after like decades and decades. And at one point, this uh, family, everybody had died but the mother. Um, and this guy went to visit her years later to console her, and she made this comment that, you know, I used to be a wife and a mother, and now I'm just a woman. Hmm. Expressing the idea of my, my identity, which was so wrapped up in this, that now I'm, I've stepped down. Yeah. And express that idea of... Yeah. And, and that's what happens when, you know, when the woman seeks to find her identity outside of those profound relationships in the family, it actually depersonalizes her. And that's the same for a husband, too, right? If a husband is going off pursuing his own thing at the expense of his family, the same thing is going to happen. Does the son feel that his dignity is being trampled on when the father tells him what to do? Does he feel like his dignity is somehow being trampled on because the father's telling him what to do? Of course not. You know, guys, I can only I can only do what the father tells me to do. And I can only say what the father commands me to say. I, I'm still God, right? How undignified. Was that his attitude? No. God does not require the family to be anything different from that which exists in his own being. Even the Godhead acts according to an authority structure. <clears throat> Don't kick against the goads. This is, this is good. This is the way he's designed it. So in the family, there needs to be a balance between the needs of the many, the individuals, and the needs of the one, the family unit. Just like in the Godhead, we don't see this tug of war where it's every person for himself. And we don't want to see the same thing with, we don't want to see that in the family, where it's every, every person for themselves. There needs to be a balance there between the unity and diversity of the family. So the husband, the wife, the individual children are not to pursue personal fulfillment to the detriment of the family. And neither is the family to be so controlling that the members of the family are unable to have any individuality and no outlet for individual expression. So you don't want the family to be so austere and so rigid that nobody feels like they have their own voice. You know, no, no individual outlet for expression. It needs to be balanced, just like we see in the Trinity. All right, regarding the church. Like the Trinity, and like the human body, the church is made up of a diversity of members. Just like the human body, there's many members, 
one body, as we read in 1 Corinthians 12. That's the analogy we're given for the church. Many members, one body. There's different personalities, different temperaments, different gifts, different interests. And like the human body, the individual members of the church depend on one another and help each other. And they work synergistically toward the same end. What is that end? To the praise of his glory. To glorify God. To honor the Son. Now, I like that word, synergy. It's always been one of my favorite words. Synergy, by definition, is the interaction or cooperation of two or more agents to produce a combined effect that is greater than the sum of their separate effects. And the way that I would liken it, I like to think of music to understand synergy. If you've ever been to a symphony and you, and you hear, listen to an orchestra, it's many different instruments. Now, if you were to just isolate one instrument, it's going to be beautiful just to listen to the one, right? But then you add another and another and another. And when they are all playing together, there's a synergy there. The overall effect is greater than all of those individual effects. Like a house full of kids. Sure. <laughs> that might sometimes be more like a cacophony, but uh, at least in my house. Or the same thing with a voice. Someone, is, someone might sing and, and just move you with their voice. It's beautiful. But then you add another voice. And maybe they're not singing melody with the first voice. Maybe they're harmonizing. And then you add a third voice, and it's a three-part harmony. And then a fourth voice, and maybe it's a four-part harmony. Or maybe you've got a whole choir. And now, synergy. Now you're seeing a combined effect that's greater than those individual effects. And that's the way it is supposed to be with the church. Each one of us, as members, has been given different gifts, different temperaments, different personalities, different things that we bring to the table, in a sense. But when you read through 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul is talking about the, the, the different members that make up a body, He's very careful to point out in there, if you're looking for it, that we don't want to overemphasize the individual gifts or the individual persons and abilities at the expense of, of the unity that it's supposed to bring. So we don't want to overemphasize those individual personalities and gifts. But then he's very quick to also say, but we don't want to underestimate them either. We need to be balanced. There needs to be unity and diversity. So, for example, he says in 1 Corinthians 12, there's a variety of gifts but the same spirit. Unity and diversity. There's a variety of service, but the same Lord. Variety, but one Lord. Diversity, unity, perfect balance. There's a variety of activities, but the same God, who empowers them all and everyone. To each member is given the manifestation of the spirit, but for the common good. For the common good. So we don't want to overemphasize the diversity at the expense of the unity that it's supposed to bring. But then he goes on and says, yes, the Spirit gives some knowledge, he gives some wisdom, discernment, he gives some faith, he gives others encouragement, all these different gifts. And we need all of them to have that synergy. So he says, don't underestimate those individual gifts either. Keep it in balance. We need both. Now, what happens in churches that overemphasize diversity? 
what happens in churches that overemphasize diversity? <clears throat> they, end, they overemphasize individual gifts, talents, personalities, maybe needs. What happens is they tend to be fragmented. In those types of churches, everyone's kind of doing his or own thing with no respect for the common good. In these types of churches, there's typically a thousand different ministries or programs, and usually the people are not coming to be part of a whole. They're not really working synergistically towards some common goal. Rather, they're going to church to use it more as like an individual consumer. They're looking for their own particular needs to be met. And quite often, these types of churches are made up of people who they want to shine individually. They have a gift or a talent, and they want everyone else to recognize it. And so what can happen when you're overemphasizing that is the church can sometimes kind of look like a, a talent show of sorts. And I've, I've seen that. Churches like this often, they don't have doctrinal cohesion. They lack a detailed or specific confession of faith that would unify. Because that's not really their focus. Their focus isn't some common goal. Doctrine would really help them to have that. It would give them that cohesion. Instead, it's kind of everyone out for themselves. So that's what can happen if we overemphasize diversity. It can lead to fragmentation. But on the other hand, churches that overemphasize unity even on secondary peripheral matters, can also cause fragmentation. So if you swing the other direction too far, same thing's going to happen, fragmentation. Some churches that overemphasize unity can become legalistic. So you think of a church that's overemphasizing, say, the Sabbath, and they're Sabbatarian. And they say, everyone must observe the Sabbath this way. And it becomes a, a to-do list, right? You can do this and you can't do that. That's not, that's overemphasizing something that is not going to lead to unity. It's actually in a fragmented church. I've seen that happen. Um, some churches are hymns only. And again, that's not, that's a kind of a peripheral issue that's, if you're overemphasizing that too much, it's going to, again, lead to fragmentation. Why does it have to be hymns only? When it comes to the, the singing component of our worship service, I mean, what's important? What's important is that, you know, we're not giving them lip service. We're worshiping with, with our true hearts engaged, right? And when it comes to music, why, why do we even have music? It's simply so that we're all in the same time and in the same key, <laughs> It's there to facilitate, that's all. What's important, most important, is the lyrical content, because the lyrical content is going to have truth. And that's what the Father wants. He is lurking, looking for those who are going to worship him in spirit and in truth. And truth is propositional. Truth is communicated in words. And so what matters most is that the songs that we are selecting are communicating truth. We're praying. That's what we're doing when we're singing. We're praying together. <coughs> and the best way to facilitate all of us praying together is music, because we can keep us in time, it can keep us in the same key, some of us. <laughs> right? So, <clears throat> that's all. We, so, if we overemphasize that, well, it has to be a hymn, and it can only be accompanied by a piano, 
that's, that's going to lead to fragmentation. And I've seen that. I've actually heard a sermon preached that the piano is the only God-ordained instrument that can accompany the, the hymns. And I love the piano, but again, I think that's going a little too far. Right? So, again, this is all just a, an example of what can happen when we overemphasize unity. It can cause fragmentation. It can lead to legalism. It can also lead to pride. Doctrine without devotion. Loveless theology. And, and I think this is something that those in Reformed camps are, are particularly susceptible to. Where it's, it almost breeds this elitism, this um, ivory towerism. And it can be off-putting, and it can lead to fragmentation. So again, it's overemphasizing unity to the point that it's, it's fragmenting a church. It can also lead to aloofness, being aloof towards sister churches. Again, I think we as those of us in Reformed camp can, can say, ouch, because we are susceptible to this. While we, you know, we believe in the five points of Calvinism, and you know, we, uh, we believe in the five solas, and you know, everyone else who doesn't, well, they're kind of second-class Christians. Or maybe some, some even go to the point of saying, well, they're not really Christians if they don't subscribe to all those things. That's not right. It's not good. Or what about our Presbyterian brethren? They're brethren. Yeah, but they get baptism all. So, anyway. That's not the attitude we're supposed to have. You're, you're overemphasizing something to the point that it leads to fragmentation. And it leads to being aloof. All right, so... Churches that overemphasize unity, they can do this in a number of different ways. One of the ways they can do it would be like wealth and status, where you go to a church and uh, the building is very opulent, and you go inside and it's, it, they've got a, a full choir, they've got an orchestra, they've actually got a conductor, and you feel like you're going to the Dallas Symphony or something. And everyone's dressed to the nines, and everyone's driving up in, you know, Mercedes-Benz or whatever. Now, there's nothing wrong with wealth in and of itself. That's not what I'm saying. But if you were to go to a church like that and feel shunned or feel like you don't belong because they've made that their identity, that's wrong. So that's one of the ways that, they can, that a church can overemphasize unity is wealth and status. Another way would be age. Some churches are extremely youth-oriented. Or, as I like to put it, it's generational tribalism. <laughs> when Bailey and I were first married, early on in our marriage, we, we ended up leaving the church that we had been attending um, for various reasons, and we were looking for another. And so we went to this church in downtown Los Angeles that was very hippy-dippy. I mean, it was <laughs> only 20s and 30s. And so we fit in because we were in our 20s. Um, but man, if you were not in your 20s and 30s, you're not going to feel very comfortable at this church. And there was no doctrinal cohesion there. Because they weren't really interested in that. It was more about you know, being hip and cool and being young and youthful. And so that's not right. Um, the last one that, I, that I'm considering anyway is that a church can overemphasize unity in ethnicity. 
And that, I think, is perhaps the most egregious. Because when we, when we read in the book of Revelation, John's account of what it's going to be like when we're all worshiping our Lord, what do we find? We find people of, of every tribe, every tongue, every kindred, every nation. That's the glory of the gospel. Go out unto all the nations and make disciples. Do you know what that word is for nations? Ethne. Go out unto all the ethne and, and make disciples. And so we should not make ethnicity our identity as a church. That's wrong. The makeup of a church, a local body, should be reflective of the culture it finds itself in. So if I'm in Africa, I would expect that, you know, depending where I'm at, there might be a lot of black people in that local body. But that's normal because that's, that's their culture. That's, their, that's the community around them. But here in Dallas, this is a very multicultural area. Many different ethnicities here. And so we would hope that our local church body would be reflective of that. Now, that's not something that we can manufacture, nor is that something we should try to manufacture. Okay, we don't, we don't want it to be seeker-friendly for certain ethnicities. No, we just say that all are welcome. It doesn't matter what, what your ethnic or cultural background is. And we trust that the Spirit is going to bring people from different ethnicities and cultures and, and join them into our local body. We should, we should embrace that. We should love that. We should want that. Because that's what heaven's going to be like. So if you don't like it now, you may not like heaven. <laughs> Churches that find their identity in external things like ethnicity, rather than in Christ, it's going against the scripture. Galatians 3.28 tells us what? In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither Jew nor Greek. What does that mean? There's no ethnicism in Christ. There's no tribalism in Christ. <clears throat> there's neither slave nor free. So there's no classism in Christ. There's no elitism in Christ. There's not even male and female in Christ. As important as those distinctions are, and we've already looked at that, those are distinctives, but we don't find our identity in our maleness or in our femaleness. We find our identity in relationship. And first and foremost, in relation to whom? Christ. So, in Christ, there is no sexism, there's no feminism, there's no misogyny. For you are all, you are all, diversity, one, unity. How? In Christ. The only way you can have unity in diversity and diversity of different ethnicisms, the only way you can have unity of every ethnicity there is in the world, the only way you can have unity in terms of economics and status, privileged or unprivileged, the only way you can have unity for those who are even male and female is in Christ. That's it. There's no other way. 
He's the only thing that can unify all of that diversity. And we see that even here in our own local body. And it should be a beautiful thing. It's reflective of the Trinity, this unity and diversity. All right. So just to put a final touch on this, there's an irony here where unity can actually lead to disunity. Unity can actually lead to disunity. It depends on what we are unified by. The church, the body, can only find unity in Christ, the head. The church, the body, can only find unity in Christ, who is the head. Without Christ, the church is decapitated. She's lost her head and her identity with it. So the doctrine of the Trinity has tremendous application. The unity and the diversity that flows out of God in the Godhead is to have an impact on how we view ourselves, our families, and our church. Indeed, the unity and diversity that is perfectly harmonized within the Godhead should be the paradigm for every relationship that we have. How important is this doctrine? How important is this doctrine of the Trinity? Sinclair Ferguson has said, I have reflected on the rather obvious thought that when the disciples were about to have the world collapse in on them, our Lord spent so much time in the upper room speaking to them about the mystery of the Trinity. In John chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17, that upper room discourse. <clears throat> if anything, he says, could, be, could underline the necessity of Trinitarianism for practical Christianity, that must surely be it. You realize what he's saying there is that that upper room discourse, this was his last teaching, really, before he's going to be arrested, falsely accused, convicted, and put to death. And their world is going to be turned upside down. So what is he, what is he teaching them? Well, he spends a lot of time in that upper room discourse speaking to them about the mystery of the Trinity. That should tell us that that's pretty dang important. All right, so those are some implications of those three truths that we considered last week as applied to the family and the church. So, our plan of attack moving forward. All of that has been kind of laying a foundation. So in the coming lessons, we're going to be doing a deep dive into the book of Ephesians. If you want, you can open Ephesians chapter 2, because we'll look at a few verses today. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to focus on verses 11 to the end, the second half of Ephesians chapter 2. And then we're going to skip over to Ephesians chapter 4 and consider the first half of Ephesians chapter 4. Now, I'm sure some of you are probably wondering, well, why, why, would, we, why would we skip chapter 3? I mean, isn't there a lot of good stuff there? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of good stuff there. But, um, you know, we're focusing on church unity. So the book of Ephesians is comprised of six chapters. The first three chapters, Paul is primarily giving us indicatives. Indicatives. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he's giving us imperatives. So let's stop for a second and consider what is an indicative and what is an imperative. An indicative, as the word would indicate, an indicative indicates. It points something out. It's telling us something. It's informing us. So, when you think indicative, think indicate. It's indicating something. An imperative. 
When you hear the word imperative, think imperial. It's imperial. When you think of imperial, you think of a king or you think of some kind of ruling, governing body that's issuing decrees. So an imperative is an authoritative command. It's imperial. It's an authoritative command. So the first half of Ephesians, Paul is, is giving us a lot of indicatives. Things that are indicating something, pointing something out. And then in the last half, he's primarily giving us imperatives, commands, things we ought to do. And these have a relationship of, uh, you could say, almost a cause and effect relationship. The indicatives are stated first in order to establish a basis for the imperatives that follow. In other words, cause and effect. So because this is who you are, he'll tell us, in those first three chapters. This is who you are, or this is who you were. This is who you are. That's an indicative, it's indicating something. It's, it's pointing something out. This is who you are. Then, when he gets to the last half of the book, it's gonna be a lot of imperatives. Now, because of who you are, this is how you should live. Command. And so there's a cause and effect relationship there. This is how God has made you to be, now, because of what he has done, this is what you are to do. This is how you are to think. There's no imperative in the Bible that is not informed, that is not informed by or rooted in certain indicatives. There's no command anywhere in the Bible that's not going to be rooted in or informed by certain indicatives. There's no command in the Bible that is without reason. We're never left at any point in the scriptures wondering to ourselves, why would God tell me to do this? Why does he expect this of me? No, every biblical imperative, every command is informed by one or more biblical indicatives. Another way we could think of this relationship between indicatives and imperatives, we could say doctrine and application. We start with doctrine, and then that's going to lead to certain applications. Or you could say theory and practice. We start with this theory, and based upon this theory, this is how we practice or orthodoxy, orthopraxy. There's many different ways we could, we could look at it. Now, with this in mind, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul gives us many indicative statements that help to shape our understanding of church unity and provide a basis for church unity. So, for example, let's look at the first six verses of chapter 2 of Ephesians. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. These are all indicative statements. There's no commands here. They're all indicatives. They're pointing something out. What are they pointing out? This is who you used to be. This is who you are now. This is who you used to be outside of Christ. This is who you are now in Christ. Indicatives. And that's going to have a huge bearing 
on our understanding of church unity to understand these indicatives. We used to be dead, is what he says. We used to be dead. A rotting corpse bloating up with sinful putrescence. We used to walk on our own sinful excrement. We used to wade through the waste and sewage of our own septic tank of transgressions. We used to follow the lead of the demon of demons. The father of lies. You are the children of him. Children of wrath. We used to live like beasts, desiring only to satisfy our lusts and gratify our passions, to do what was right in our own eyes. We used to be vessels that were marked for eternal damnation and destruction. That's who you used to be outside of Christ. But now, who are we now? Paul continues to give more indicatives. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. We are no longer dead, bloating corpses waiting to be thrown into the fires of hell. We're alive in Christ. We are vessels of mercy waiting to, be, waiting to receive glorified resurrection bodies that will never see decay. Our, we, we used to be marked for destruction. We were dead, bloating, and, and the only usefulness at that point was to be thrown into hell. But now, in Christ, we are going to receive new bodies that never decay. This is who you were. This is who you are now. These indicative statements of chapter 2, as we're going to see, are critical in understanding the basis of church unity. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, then, Paul gives several imperatives with regard to church unity. So he's laid down a bunch of indicatives regarding church unity earlier. Now he's going to give us some commands, some imperatives. For example, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of your mind. Put off your old self. Command. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Command. Put away falsehoods. Command. Speak the truth. Command. Be angry and do not sin. Command. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. These are imperative, 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 imperative. But why, Paul? Why should I do these things? Why? Because that's the only appropriate response to what God's done for you. That's why. Don't you remember who you used to be? That dead, bloating corpse? Filling up with sinful filth and refuse? Filling up in yourself an increasing measure of God's wrath? Treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath? That's who you used to be. This is why you should do that. Because of what he's done for you. He took you out of the muck and mire, and he set your feet upon the rock, who is Christ. That's why you should do this. Because of what he's done for you. Cause and effect. The indicatives inform the imperatives. And so for this reason, our plan of attack starting next week, will be to look at these indicatives further in chapter 2 to find the basis for our church unity, and then when we've completed that, we'll move to chapter 4 to see the imperatives that flow out from those indicatives. And that's today's lesson.